Hello, and welcome to Foreign Affairs Inbox, the entirely student-run and student-produced podcast of the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University. We're your producers and hosts, Taylor Galgano and Emma Anderson, two seniors presenting you with a journalism and international affairs collab on the latest trending global matters. This season's theme is peace, conflict, and protests. By the end of each episode, you will understand the issue at hand, no matter how complex. Prepare to hear from us and different Elliott School faculty to help with our own expert analysis. Want to hear us chat about a topic you're interested in? Slide into our DMs at Elliott School GW on Twitter or Instagram. This morning, Ambassador to the Ukraine, William B. Taylor, joined us at the Elliott School of International Affairs to receive the Leadership and Ethics Award. He then sat down for a conversation and a Q&A, and we're lucky enough to have him in the studio with us for FAI right now. Thank you so much, Ambassador, for being here with us. It was great listening to your conversation, too. Emma, did you enjoy it? Yes? We did enjoy it very much. It was a very interesting conversation. So, Ambassador Bill Taylor is the acting U.S. Ambassador to the Ukraine. He's a graduate of West Point and a Vietnam veteran. He has extensive experience in Ukrainian foreign policy. He has worked in the Department of Energy, NATO, the State Department here, in addition to in the Middle East and in the Ukraine, and then retired to join the U.S. Institute for Peace. He has been appointed to all of these positions under every president from Reagan to Trump. So to start us off, you were one of the first witnesses to be called into only the third ever impeachment hearing in the history of the U.S. What was that like? It was unreal in some real sense. It was not what I ever wanted to have to do. It was, however, an opportunity to talk about Ukraine and to make the case that the United States has a real stake in the future of Ukraine. And that was part of the discussion. The Congress, the House members that conducted these depositions and that then conducted the hearings, were very interested. I testified with the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, who oversees Ukraine. So we had an opportunity to talk about U.S. policy. So one of your main points in your testimony was the importance of the Ukraine and your strong support for sanctions against Russia. We should support Ukraine because it's on the front line of our freedom. It's on the front line of the attack that the Russians are mounting against Ukraine, against Europe, and against us. Many people, and again, taking advantage of this, many people don't realize there is a fighting war. There's a hot war in Europe today. There are Ukrainians who die on the front line of this war every week. You emphasize that withholding security aid from the Ukraine, no matter the reason, is, quote, wrong. So what could happen if aid was withheld from the Ukraine? For any longer than it was. So as we know, the Russians have invaded Ukraine. The Ukrainians have been defending themselves. They've stabilized this war. The Russians have, in fact, you know, declared by their actions war on Ukraine and the rest of the West. So this is an important aspect. This is important action for the United States to take as well as Europeans and the West. So this is a key part of European history right now. We supported Ukraine, and we do support Ukraine in this fight, in this battle, and we've provided them with security assistance, including weapons, um, including training, including equipment that helps them to defend themselves. This administration actually has given more weapons than the previous administration. And so that's an indication that there's bipartisan support for this policy of supporting Ukraine against the Russians. 
if the pause, if the delay, if the interruption in the security assistance had persisted, it would clearly have denigrated and reduced the ability of the Ukrainians to defend themselves. Even more important, it would have sent the signal to the Russians that the Americans are not fully supporting Ukraine any longer. That was at least as important as the actual weapons, the actual training, the actual equipment that we provide. As important as that is, the message to the Ukrainians that they have to worry about their main ally, their strongest ally, and the message to the Russians that maybe the Ukrainians' main ally is not quite committed. Right. So the symbolic implications would have been as bad as the actual implications then, essentially. Exactly right. The message to the Russians would have been at least as damaging as the pause in the actual assistance. Going off of that, what does a free and independent Ukraine mean for Europe and the rest of the world today? This is a great question. And I think it's an important question. And I think there's a strong answer. If Ukraine is independent, if Ukraine is able to succeed in what it's trying to do and what it's been trying to do in terms of becoming a normal European country with a chance to make its economy grow, with a chance to have its democratic processes and foundations expand and solidify, if it can become a normal European country in the political sense, in the economic sense, then the Russians will not be able to control them and Russia will not be an empire. Zbigniew Brzezinski made this point years ago that if the Russians dominate, control Ukraine, they will be an empire again. The Russians will be an empire again. And he also went on to say that the Russians can't be both an empire and democratic. So if the Russians succeed in what they're trying to do to control Ukraine, that condemns Russians to never being a democracy. And I think that's important. That really shows the importance of the Ukraine in the global arena. So now switching gears a little bit, you talked a lot about the regular versus irregular channels in your conversation today at Elliot. So we began, and as I went through the summer, last summer it is now, it became clear to me that there were two channels of policy making and policy execution. I'll call the first channel the regular channel, and it's the institutional channel, and I'll talk a little bit about institutions and the importance of institutions. But the regular channel of policy uh, making and policy implementation for Ukraine was the embassy, the Ukraine desk at the State Department, and the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, the Assistant Secretary of State, and all the way People like uh, Alex Binman in the National Security Council and Fiona Hill, famous names now, more famous, thankfully, than mine. And this irregular channel was the product of and led by a private lawyer. And probably everybody in this room knows who I'm talking about. And he was able to get the assistance of a couple of well-meaning diplomats. So this irregular channel tried to have an effect on one small part of the U.S. policy towards Ukraine. And you all know this story. I don't have to tell the story. And if anybody doesn't know it, I can refer you to some congressional testimonies <laughs> <laughs> where I lay it out in great detail. 
I guess we were just wondering, in sort of your long career in service, is this common or is this something that's new? So this is not common. This irregular channel is not common in the following respect. It was not designed. Irregular channel was not put together to support U.S. foreign policy. There are many occasions where the U.S. government will look to outside experts and indeed will even sponsor parallel conversations with private sector or former public officials, with private sector and former government officials in Ukraine or in Russia or the Russians and Ukrainians. That's not unusual. That's helpful. And it's helpful to U.S. foreign policy. It is in support of U.S. security objectives. This is different. And this is unusual. I don't know if it's unique, but it's certainly unusual in my experience where the irregular channel was perverted. It was diverted from U.S. foreign policy. It was in pursuit of something other than U.S. national security objectives. The next question about sort of what you were talking about earlier this morning, when you sort of talked about institutions as the conscience of the United States. The institutions, institutions are really a boring subject. I'm amazed that here we are talking in front of a large group of people about institutions. But this is really important. Think of it as a conscience. The institution of national security is the conscience of the U.S. government in developing the national security. That, I think, is an important concept. Can you talk a little bit more about like what that metaphor means exactly? I'm glad you asked this question because this is hard, talking about institutions. But what I'm trying to say is that the structure of U.S. foreign policy making, that is the people, the offices, the organization, the procedures that go into coming up with a policy, in this case of U.S. policy toward Ukraine, are longstanding well-established, malleable. They vary to some degree from administration to administration, but by and large, there is the State Department and there's the Defense Department and there's the National Security Council, other the Treasury, USAID, Justice. All of them have contributions and bringing those all together and pulling in opinions and options from USAID on how assistance can help forward U.S. foreign policy toward Ukraine. Department of Justice is prosecuting some of the corrupt officials and former corrupt officials and corrupt businessmen who have broken the law in the United States. There are all of these different pieces that come into foreign policy that, when combined, give us a sense of how to move forward. And it gives us boundaries. It helps keep us on track. It keeps us from being diverted into a direction that could be harmful to U.S. interests. And so that cumbersome process has a real function, and it's to be supported. Yeah, I never heard it like that, but that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Going off of what you said about the importance of foreign policy institutions and U.S. national interests taking the forefront, have you noticed that most foreign policy has remained sort of nonpartisan and consistent throughout all the administrations you've worked for up until this experience with the irregular channels? Yes, and it's because U.S. foreign policy is driven by interests about what the United States is interested in, what actions are in our interest, what actions that the Ukrainians can take that will help us as well as help them. 
And the definition of those interests has generally stayed the same over time in most areas. Not all. There are sometimes big changes in foreign policy. And I'm thinking of this administration when it made a change to our policy toward the U.S. Embassy in Israel. For a long time, in all of the times that I've been in the U.S. government, and I did a little bit of work in Jerusalem and Israel, Palestine, the policy had been the embassy stays in Tel Aviv until there's an agreement between the Israelis and the Palestinians. This administration came in and made a change. In my general experience on Ukraine, as I mentioned in my talk, Ukraine has benefited from bipartisan support, in the Congress, but also bipartisan support across successive administrations. Republicans and Democrats have supported Ukraine across the time period that I've been involved with it. This is a little lighter subject. You talked about how your wife told you not to take the position. I'm checking to see if people that I know would have some advice. One person I know and my wife. And I checked with her, and her advice was don't go. I heard recently that there is a hashtag it's for wives whose husbands don't listen to them. <laughs> and the hashtag is, we're all Mrs. Taylor. You also, I think, talked about that in your testimony at some point, too. Do you regret it? Do you regret not listening to her? Or do you feel like you made the right call? I will always try to listen to what she says. And I will try to take advice, in particular from my wife, on this. However, in answer to your question, I don't regret it. And I would do it again. And she would probably agree that it was a good thing for me to do. So how do you predict the impeachment hearings and Trump being acquitted will affect the 2020 presidential election? People will have to make decisions themselves, of course. I've noticed that the impeachment discussion has not been forefront of the primaries on the Democratic side. It has not figured explicitly. So maybe that will change in the regular campaign, but we'll see. Thank you, Ambassador Bill Taylor, for being here today with us. Taylor, thank you very much. Emma, good to be here. Thank you so much. Like what you've heard? Don't forget to follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and most importantly, link your friends. I'm Emma Anderson. And I'm Taylor Gelgano. And thank you for tuning into this episode.